and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. It's only been in the last few years, but I've really, really started to notice it, which is something about this a kind of urgency to live into the corners of my life before the opportunities are taken away. Know that however right the decision you're making is, expect to feel grief. Because I think what happens is the minute people start to feel lost or grieving or jealous or missing or whatever the thing is, we panic. I made the wrong decision or, oh, what have I done? And I think there's something about shoring yourself up to know as a human, you're going to feel it all. It doesn't necessarily need to dictate the future or the di- to suggest that there's something wrong. My guest today is Jodie Karras, a psychotherapist and author and the founder of The Self Space, the world's first on-demand mental health service on the high street, offering in-person and virtual appointments. Her first professional role was as a children's television presenter before she trained as a drama therapist and worked with schools and individuals. Jodie was born in Brighton and spent her childhood in a little village in East Sussex before moving to the sights and sounds of Hackney when she was 17. She earned a diploma in acting and a master's in drama and movement therapy from the Royal Central College of Speech and Drama. It's probably fair to say that she didn't set out necessarily to disrupt the way people access and have therapy, but that's what she has done with the self-space, and it's a model that's been embraced worldwide. She believes her job is to facilitate and highlight a path towards fulfilling one's full potential, both individually and collectively. I'm always excited to hear my guest life lessons, and I am delighted to be hearing yours today, Jodie. How are you? I am so well. Thank you for having me. It's a real privilege to join you and to share in this space. So yeah thank you I'm really excited to chat to you and we did an Instagram live together on the self space and it was very like I could we, I could imagine that when we actually physically get together it will just be a just lots of talking and to that point before we started recording we were just having a natter and I said oh my god no don't say that now say this on the show because I think that's really important for women to hear uh, all men who are listening, because I was saying how as a 45 year old operating in the beauty industry, as I do, is one of my many roles. I really am beginning to feel like and having to accept that to a lot of people in that industry. I am now a 45 year old dinosaur who is fundamentally irrelevant. And I, I, I never thought about it until you said the thing about women at a certain age say that you start to feel invisible but I I guess that is what it is and you said which I thought was really interesting that you almost feel like you're in a bit of a rush to to sort of peak live this particular portion of your life because you and I are a similar age. Totally I and it was really nice to share that with you actually it's only been in the last few years but I've really really started to notice it which is something about this 
a kind of urgency to live into the corners of my life before the opportunities are taken away. And I know there's such a massive cliche right about, you know, oh God, I wish I'd known this when I was younger and if I could do things differently. And it's not necessarily about having regrets, but there's something about, I feel the time span in which maybe it's about socially acceptable to do things or be a particular way or wear whatever. But I definitely feel the older I'm getting, the more invisible I am. And I want to find a way to accept that as opposed to resist it but sort of accept it in a kind of with with a bit of power and a bit of I don't know a bit of snazziness to it I don't want to just recede into the background um I was talking with my daughter who's 13 and she said I can't believe you're still wearing denim shorts and I was like I'm so wearing denim shorts but I still can because in a minute I might not be able to I really not want to there's something in it I feel it I really feel it do you I do you know what I do in the sense that I haven't had a lot of the milestones that a lot of women my age have had in terms of marriage and children. And there's a really massive part of me that still is in the head, like would still get excited about watching my so-called life at 6 p.m. on Channel 4 on a, on a Wednesday afternoon <laughs> because I, because I'm still quite close. I'm close to that version of me than I guess anything else in some weird way. And so when I get dressed, when I get dressed and I go into London for meetings, and I put on a bandy t-shirt and jeans and Adidas. For me, that's almost like an act of rebellion, but also it's that sort of, well, I, I, I still can, but I am mm. like you're saying, thinking there will come a point when I will look at myself in the mirror and think, oh no, this is a bit sad now, Emma. <laughs> like that's yeah. what I'm beginning well, to think. Well, totally. No, and I think, you know, I do, there's a lot of, I know from kind of, you know, conversations I have in the therapy room as well around this theme, there's a lot of single women, actually, my clients and people that use self space. And I think that the way the world is moving, particularly kind of with the way dating is and dating apps, the way that we uh, feel so disposable, this idea of our identity and how we look and how we feel and how those two things marry up is so important. And I think there is something about maybe somewhere deep down, there is still a bit of teenage Emma in there. And there's I, there's definitely a bit of teenage me. And that's the rebellious part that's like, I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to be this. But you're right. When does it become a point where people are like, well, that she looks a bit stupid over there. You know, what's going on? <laughs> is she having a midlife crisis? Which I don't really believe in, actually. But um, yeah, well, let's, let's wear the things while we still feel we can honestly <laughs> I, I think that I think that's a thing and I guess there's also a part of it isn't it is that you sort of wish that you were a teenager who could do all those things unchecked like I remember like working in the local corner shop and trying to wear I think it was a Beavis and Butthead t-shirt to my shift and my mum being like you will wear a jumper and it's almost like now it's like I'll wear it the way that I want to wear it even <laughs> though it's like 30 years later I don't care <laughs> I can now, so I'm going to. Yeah, totally. I think there's so much of that, you know, where we, I can find it and I can really trace it in myself and also in my clients, you know, the bits of ourselves that we didn't get to exercise properly, the bits of ourselves that we didn't feel we negotiated quite right. We go back and we try and find another way of doing it. And I actually think that's quite healthy in some ways. Mm. You know, if we're not pushing it to the extremes, I think this idea of when we come up against our, kind of our old experiences and we can kind of renegotiate them for the better I think that helps our growth and our confidence actually mm. um so you wear the beavers and butthead t-shirt mine was a hooters mine was a hooters <laughs> t-shirt and and I can remember someone bought it back from America I still got it I kept it for my daughter who thinks it's like the best thing ever although I, I feel bet. a bit weird about her wearing it I must say but I will let her 
but my mum was like you're you're definitely not wearing that and I was mm-hmm. like I definitely am and then I had it and my ex-husband said to me you're I don't think you should go out in that. This was some years later, and I was like, I so am. <laughs> I won't wear it now, though. It's okay. <laughs> but I think as well, I was having this conversation with two beauty colleagues the other night at dinner because we're we're all over 40. And just sort of saying that, God, it really does happen where you age. It's like, it's like you age out of the industry, but it's kind of this weird thing because you're aging out of the industry at the time at which you have the most potentially to add and that your audience is probably the ones who have the most disposable income to spend within it. But maybe your engagement is a lot less than someone else. But anyway, that's sort of a, a, a slight tangent. But I guess I came away from the conversation with my friends thinking, okay, well, this is the reality of it. I, I am aging out of the industry it's not going to embrace and accept me in the way that it had previously. So what I can really do is emotionally disconnect from it in a way whereby I'm not pushed off my path of what I want to do within it, but I don't seek the validation from it anymore. That's when that's the difficult bit. Yeah, it's, it's high. Well, I think that's a really great kind of ambition though, isn't it? Because that gives you both a sense of purpose and also a kind of place of gravitas too, which is, you know, how do we know, how do we really feel our worth without needing someone to tell us that we're worthy or that we're we're good enough? And I think we can all strive for it, but actually as humans, we do need validation. Like it's, you know, it's so ingrained in us, even as children, you know, we want to do well, we want to be praised, we want to make things better or good. And I don't think that stops. I think it's a natural propensity, but how do we get to a place where we need it best? Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. And aiding out of the industry, gosh, what a horrible concept, but I know it's so live, it's so real, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And um, it's not the only industry, I think. It's... um, yeah, I know when I was in TV, even back then I was what 19. And it was it was a really brutal place to be around. Um, you know, maybe you're not quite you're not good looking enough, someone said to me once, or you're a bit fat, is what I used to get told. Oh I, you're I was like a size eight. Not that it matters what size I was. You're a little bit fat. I can remember thinking I don't have well, I have a lot of complexes, but I don't really have one around my body, really. But I can remember thinking that I don't. Oh, that's not very nice. I don't feel a little bit fat. I wish you hadn't said that. And I just think I think we're it's the same but different nowadays, actually. Because um, let's talk about that because you were a TV presenter. So I mean that is that's a pretty rough. That can be a pretty rough world within which to exist. And I think until you look behind the curtain, as it were, you can think it's all glossy and jolly as as all children presenters are so fun. But actually, it's happy. not like that behind no. the scenes. No, it was quite brutal. Actually, I did wildlife. Um, I'd gone for an, a casting for uh, the Pepsi chart show. Can you remember the Pepsi chart? That was so cool. And I was like, I really want that. And the producer had said to me, we think you're really good and everything, but you're a bit of a liability for live TV. <laughs> and I was like, why? And he said, because you swore four times in that 12 minutes. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> point taken. But we want you to do this wildlife show. And I said, I don't know anything about wildlife, like nothing. And um the first I, I've always been terrified of sharks Emma like really it was a Jaws we were a Jaws generation Jaws generation with good reason 
totally <laughs> still now that film terrifies me but mine was so extreme and later in life in therapy I've kind of got under the complex of it. it's nothing to do with sharks but I couldn't even have a hotel room facing the sea that's how bad it was and I had shark books under my pillow like I was obsessed and so the producer said yeah so the first job is a it's a great white shark dive at night in South Africa and I was like yeah Totally. I can definitely do that. I'm really excited. Got off the phone. I was like, oh, oh my God. I want to be on the telly so much. Like I, this thing about being validated and what did it mean to be on the telly that somehow I've got to find a way to make myself do this. Oh, it was honestly, the world collided in a way. It was just like, I'm in the face of my trauma now and I didn't even know. Um, I, I mean, I think my insides just liquefied on your behalf <laughs> when you said that. Did you do it? I did it, but it's the most harrowing thing to watch, Emma, because basically I had to, so this was for Channel 5 back in the day, I, I had to go to hypnotherapy to get myself to even get on the boat to go. And did the TV people um, know about that you were having to do this? Yes, a bit, but they were all so laddie, and I don't like mm. to use that word, but the crew were quite, I mean, they were lovely, but they were quite laddie, they were just excited, they were noisy baiting the water it was this high kind of horrible (laughs) (laughs) I'm painting a really bad picture so I get in I managed to get in the cage it's all open at the top if you've ever done it It was like 20 odd years ago Jodie I have not (laughs) well you're sane and and sensible Emma that's why (laughs) so I get in I, I managed to do it over seven minutes, like I've got to get out. All I can say to the camera is, it's got a big mouth, it's got a big <laughs> mouth. And it was just, that was just repeated on telly for years later. Anyway, when I got out, there was like some kind of incident where the cage had come away from the side of the boat and the shark had gone into the top of the cage. So the cameraman was sort of having to go like this with this massive underwater camera. I definitely would not have survived that. Like just, I definitely would have passed out and so that just reinforced my fear like what wow this is awful this has been awful <laughs> so you got out of the cage from the top I got out and then yeah, got out. after you, you jump across after you exited the cage the yes. shark somehow got into the cage, <laughs> the cage and the person remaining in the cage had to Was... use equipment to put to back <laughs> Oh yeah. God, oh can, God. Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine? It was like the most surreal thing because I was just like, look, my fears are validated. This is like, this this, this doesn't see you as a human. It sees you as a piece of food. And you, this is not safe. Like, it was awful. Anyway, they were less laddie on the boat on the way home. Everyone's very quiet. Honestly. What's that cameraman <laughs> doing? Oh my goodness, bless him. Yeah, it was. I think it was quite a shocking a shocking thing but but even that you know we're talking about the kind of autonomy and the you know what what does it mean to be seen what does it mean to be validated I definitely wouldn't do that now but mm-hmm. like, I just say I you know I'm really happy to do other things but I'm, I'm not going to do that but I didn't have a voice then I didn't feel I didn't feel I could speak up about what I needed and what I wanted or it's what was saying yeah, it's really interesting because obviously I start the conversations with my guests with talking about your relationship with risk. So based on the conversation that we've just had, I would be like, okay, well, she's got a pretty damn cavalier relationship with it. But obviously you've explained that there were some pretty specific circumstances and that really, and, and uh, now you would behave completely differently. So bigger picture, 
What is your relationship with risk like? Mm, lovely question. <laughs> um, very therapy question. Um, <laughs> the way that I kind of I immediately go to when when you when you say that when I think about risk for myself is now I think about something called the knife edge of change, which is where we sit kind of when we move into a space where growth is needed or possible, we come to a point of risk, which is uh, for me, it's quite a physical thing. I can feel it and it feels a little bit anxious. It feels I can notice myself. I'm at, I'm on a knife edge, which means I can either push through and grow or I can recede the other way. And so I associate risk there, actually, which is whenever I get to a point in my life which feels like it might it might yield some growth, it often feels like I need to take a risk here. And and sometimes the risk can feel massive and sometimes um, and not so. And I think the older I get, the more courageous I am about how I take risks and, 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 and what I risk for myself, which might be the thing that I'm trying to avoid, which might be, I don't know, loneliness or, you know, whatever the thing is. And I can kind of push on a bit more with it. So that's how I think about risk now, actually, is it's a more growth piece. I think that's a really wonderful way of framing it as well. And also this idea of being on a knife edge. And also sometimes it feel it it's that pressure of you do have to jump one way or another. You could have been coasting along for a while, but now you really have put yourself, you've sort of traveled down this a corridor that's getting narrower and narrower. And now you have to make a choice. Decide. You have to decide. And there have been a few times in my life where I've really really felt that one of them was when I left TV and and you know I can that felt like a risk to me like I had quite a successful career I probably could have carried on but I was just so unhappy it, it inside I just felt completely disconnected and I it felt like a huge risk for me to leave and and sometimes the the the, the actual feeling of the risk is disproportionate to the actual risk because everyone goes oh well you'll be fine and it's okay but emotionally it felt huge mm. um so I I I've noticed a few crossroads in my life um and and actually it's always it has such wood paid off I don't believe in touch with it you know something about that sentiment it's always... what was at stake for you what was the what was the risk what was at stake was it pride That's, I'm sort of imagining putting myself in your shoes and I can imagine that something so that perhaps did elicit a lot of external validation it was the removal of that there was something about that I think I had I didn't have a sense of confidence in myself actually so I needed it from the outside I need to be given that confidence in order to feed it so I think I felt like oh I might be a bit of a flaccid whoopee cushion now that I that I <laughs> that all that might go there was that and then I think there was something deeper for me in it which was I was the first person in my family to go to um, to study to go to uni to even go to college actually I was I was um, except my aunt who was quite amazing but I also think there was something tied up in my relationship with my parents around that which was they thought it was amazing that I was on the telly and it was cool you know there was only five tv stations back then and I, I think the risk to me was, well, maybe I just won't be special anymore. Or I won't be enough. Or, so I think the risk was was quite internal for me, actually, emotional. And actually, when I asked you about the specific risk, you it wasn't about leaving your career in TV. For you, it was about leaving a marriage. Yeah, that felt like another point, a massive crossroads in my life, which... Um, 
so my ex-husband and I were together for 22 years and so since I was I met him when I was 19 um it still had such a huge amount of growing to do and um I didn't really know about endings you know I hadn't seen relationships ending well I didn't know that that, that this is part of life that this this is such an important thing that our children and that young people know that friendships end relationships with family end and it doesn't need to be the end of the world it's it can be a piece of growth you know it can be a piece of learning about ourselves and each other and so it it, it still feels like a massive risk sometimes I, we've been separated for five years honestly I think our relationship is better now than it ever was when we were together he seems way happier I feel more myself um, and I think I was just terrified of being on my own I was terrified of could I do it I didn't know and, and what about ending I was not even what's my family going to think because no one's really together but there was something about that but I wanted to be different I wanted to, I needed to make this work I didn't know a healthy way of ending I didn't think I did um and so that felt like it took me a long time to get there. But I think it took me five or six years to get there, actually. Um, the risk felt so huge. Do you think you were coming at it from if this ends and we part ways, then that is a failure on my life ledger, as opposed to if this ends and we part ways, this is the beginning of the rest of my life? Exactly that, exactly what you said first, that this is. And what's what are people going to think of a therapist that can't make her marriage work? You know, what does that mean? And, and and for me, the making it work was leaving. The staying was actually just colluding with the fact I couldn't, I couldn't, I trapped myself and I couldn't, I couldn't make it better or different. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I, I, yeah, I feel way more confident now from having done it, actually. I'm not saying it's all been easy or all good, but it, it's definitely um, better and positive in lots of ways. Do you feel as though um, it is like breathing new once you adjust, obviously, and that adjustment happens over time and takes a while? But do you, does it feel like having a second stab at things? You know, we were talking before about rushing to fill all the corners of your life. Do you think that you've got a real second go? A little bit, actually. And I feel much more equipped to do things that I couldn't have done, like, you know, hope back in the whole dating thing now which I hadn't done a lot of because I was quite young when I met my husband you know and I I um I don't think I was equipped to deal with it then in the way that I am now I don't I I sort of wish I had but I didn't and so now I'm in definitely a kind of learning phase around relationships and what it means to have meaningful connections with people in a way that I never did before so there's that we bought all our properties together, me and my ex, all through the years, and I just bought a place on my own. So that's the first one I'd earned, I'd owned on my own. So it's just all these kind of little things that, that feel much more about becoming something. If someone's listening to this and they are at the end of a relationship or a marriage or whatever it might be, we could even talk about friendships here because trust me, the amount of female friends I speak to who say that their big their biggest heartbreak is breaking up with friends and yet we don't talk about it is it's happened so many times in the last year. But if someone's yeah. listening to this and they're at that point where something is coming to what feels like an end, are there any words of encouragement or a perspective shift that you would like to offer them from mm. the other side if you like 
Yeah, so really, really useful actually. And I think your your um your statement about friendships is a really big one too. And I think we don't learn about that the the end life of a relationship in in terms of friends. And I I would say know that however right the decision you're making is expect to feel grief because I think what happens is the minute people start to feel lost or grieving or jealous or missing or whatever the thing is we panic I made the wrong decision or oh what have I done and I think there's something about shoring yourself up to know as a human you're going to feel it all it doesn't necessarily need to dictate the future or the dictate to suggest that there's something wrong um so I think there's that I think know that you're going to go through a range of emotions and you will feel the absence and the loss of something because it's what you've known if it's a friendship or family or whatever Mm -hmm. so there's there's one thing um the other is something about how I how to talk about what feels difficult while it's happening rather than in in the past and and know that you don't need to have all the answers or all the rationale like people used to say to me I don't understand why why are you leaving like why are you leaving your marriage and I'd be like uh I don't really know like I didn't it wasn't as concrete as well you know he did this or I feel this it wasn't that it was a multitude of other things it's absolutely okay to say I'm not sure but you just have to know that I know and I feel it and that's enough Mm. so I think if you can't have it all written neatly in a kind of Instagram slide that's very normal and very human. Um, and I think we can panic about that. Um, there's some there's some great reads that I can share with you too, Emma, that you might want to put somewhere for people to kind of to look at about relationships and what it means for those to end and um, and how to learn. And the other thing I guess is, and I know people talk about this a lot, is that how to stay soft in the face of pain and in the face of um you know, real challenge and real hostility, which I think can come with the ending of things, conflict. Mm. How do we stay soft? How do we, I don't mean soft and fluffy, but I mean for yourself, softening is always the best way. You know, what does it mean to know what you had, to feel so much gratitude for what's been whilst you're faced with something really horrible right in that here and now? Um, and and trying to find that relationship to your own softness, I think, will help. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sorry, and I know, I know, I've hurt you, or I know, and this is hurting, and something about that we often just attack or defend, rather than just kind of being in it. Mm. Do you? Um, I would just be really curious because I think, having mentioned friendships, there might be people saying, "Please ask about this. Please ask about this." Is it something that you, and obviously you can't divulge specifics, but is that a topic that you have found that perhaps people lean on self-space for, for dealing with yeah. friendships ending? Obviously, I think relationships is, is quite well known and accepted, but I think perhaps seeking help for the end of a friendship and trying to make sense of that can be, I wonder if you deal with that quite a lot. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, we definitely do. And I noticed that what happens for people is when they start to make one change, and the pandemic, post-pandemic has been really good for this because it showed us that we have the power to survive everything you know, this power that we can survive something. I know COVID was really difficult. And lots of people had really, really horrible experiences, but it's also shown us that we can make change and we can survive it. And so I think coming off the back of that, people have been much more empowered to go, okay, that relationship isn't serving me anymore. I need to friendship or I need to leave that or I need to change my job or I need to make these changes. And um, I notice that people come to self-based and they might say, okay, I'm really unhappy in my job. I'm really unhappy in my marriage or whatever. And then they make one change and then all the other ones can happen really quickly and much more easily. Okay, mm. well, actually I'm re- that friendship isn't working. So I think once we start to do one, we start to reshape our life a bit. And um, I think that can be, actually be a really healthy thing. If it's not if it's not a defensive act, which is this is too difficult for me to process, mm-hmm. rather lean into, can I try and process it? And can we try and negotiate it? And if we can't, then how do we let it go? Mm. Do you find endings? How do you find it? We touched on this in the Deeper Meaningfuls, I think. Do you find endings hard or do you find? I do. Um I I do but I think I have I'm a real softy until I'm not and even though I might look outwardly as because I I will be the person who just ghosts and just cuts things off but for me to do that I have there has been probably a prolonged period of of me being quite uncomfortable or unhappy or whatever and then I've tried to communicate perhaps um inadequately and then I feel like I met with a brick wall and so I back off. And I I am understanding now as I get older how how cruel and cold that can look. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to do that. I think when we spoke on the deep and meaningful on Instagram, I said that actually, and I'll be very honest about this as I always am, I actually used self-space during lockdown because I felt like I'd been really betrayed by a friend had really broken my trust. And I was by myself. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to talk to other friends about it because a lot of them are mutual friends. So I had a chat with someone at self space and I think the thing I just wanted to come away from it from was I don't want to lose people (laughs) I've got to that age in my early 40s at that point I've there are people who I have let go or who've let me go and I've made peace with all of those things and I do believe it's for the better but in this scenario in the past I would have been like that's it you're dead to me (laughs) in a sort of in a in a yeah, and like a comic cartoon rate, but that was definitely a, a self-preservation technique. That was because it wasn't because I hate you or because I think you're this, that, or the other. It was because you've hurt me so much, I simply cannot let you in anymore. So I can't bear it. Yeah, but that obviously outwardly it looks like, oh my God, she is one cold bitch. But that <clears throat> that obviously what was going on was, and I'm protecting my my tiny, delicate little heart. But I just thought I don't want to lose any more people. And so I think I am coming round to an answer to your question. I think I'm getting better at endings because I I try to see them off. I try, try to head them off at the past. So now, yes, okay, you broke my trust and that really freaking hurt. But I want to try and enjoy all of the other parts of you. And in order to do that, I just have to not tell you certain things. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I think I, for me, Jodie, that is growth. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's amazing. And that also there's something about the awareness to it, isn't it? I think we don't have to be able to fix everything in our life or fix all of the relationships, but the consciousness about you, that's the thing that, that that's growing because it's like, I understand what I'm doing here, which is self-preservation. And that's too painful for me, the repeated kind of, I don't want to say abuse, but the repeated behavior, the impact to me. And I can't, maybe you can't rationalize it. Maybe you can't even say it, but something about knowing that it gives you more autonomy. It also gives you the voice to be able to say, if you really need to, it isn't really about you. You just have to know that wherever I'm at with this, it's too difficult for me to be here right now. Mm. Um, and I think that that can be really painful, obviously, at times, but it's also really healthy and really helpful to. Um, yeah, we're sensitive beings, you know, everything we do as humans is really to defend against feeling, whether it's work, whether it's relationships, whether it's drinking, whether it's shopping, whatever it is. We've built and crafted so many layers to keep us away from feelings because they're so can be so overwhelming, you know. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's okay to to leave people behind. The thing I would tend to, I guess, is if you are ending relationships and you notice it's quite themic for you, I would really challenge. I'm not talking to I guess I'm talking to the audience, the re, to the listeners, is that you know that you are challenging yourself with the questions around why. So rather than just going, it's them, um, the only thing that really matters is you. What is it that you brought to the table? What are you coming up against? It doesn't really matter what they're doing. The thing is about you. Is it, That's the best way to approach it, I think. That's really, really good advice. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. When did you... What we just talked to then about we sort of protect ourselves from feelings, we hide from feelings, but you're kind of in the business of feelings. <laughs> when did yeah. that when did it become really clear? Because as I said in the introduction, what you created with self space is very disruptive and very much not the thing actually I think people would assume would be born out of a UK based business. So what was it for you that was the the pull to this is really important and it has mm. to be accessible and available. Mm. Um, you've got great questions, Emma. Anyone would think you were a journalist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I think it was a combination of my past. You know, feelings were not talked about in my household ever. It just wasn't a thing. There was no language around emotional literacy, feelings. Um, they were absolutely pushed to into the recesses um, and never ever talked about never thought about so there was a combination of that and I really wanted to strive to be different than my family I didn't know how and I love them and I have a, a huge amount of gratitude for all of them but there's I want I knew I wanted to do there must be a different way here because this just can't be it um coupled with a kind of real curiosity about what was emerging at the time just before I launched self space which was people saying businesses particularly can you come and talk about can you talk about therapy and feelings and mental health but don't say any of those words we don't want you to say mental health <laughs> like somehow mental health in itself which is an amazing thing was contagious and bad it's a little bit like suicide you know people say don't say suicide because if you say it then someone else is going to catch that and there's a kind of real fear around it. And I remember saying 
to a massive company, I'm not going to do that. I'm really sorry. Mm. But I'll come and I'll talk about it, but I'm not I'm not going to not say those words. What can I do here to, to kind of move this stigma on? And also for myself, you know, the doctors do an amazing job at doing what they can, the NHS, in terms of mental health. But the doctors is where we go when we're sick. And why should we think about struggling with our mental health as an illness and not something normal? And I know there are categories of mental health, obviously, and mental health challenges. Um, But for me, there was something about how do I raise the aspiration here? How do I make this a thing that people feel good about going to, want to flex that muscle, rather than, oh, I've got to wait until I'm unwell and then I'll go to a doctor who will tell me, oh, you are unwell. And so I thought there has to be something. And then the Americans are really good at it, as you say. They're much, much better. Um, but in the UK, there were sticky kind of chairs and strip lighting rooms where you got diagnosed and prescribed medication. There wasn't a space which was like, who are you and how are you doing? It's okay. Let's just talk about it. Did you find that people sort of almost dismissed you in those early days as like, oh, for God, you're such a navel gazer. <laughs> you wally yeah. um actually do you know i this concept was received so well honestly i think the world was ready for this and i'm not saying you know we're world dominating but <laughs> we had we had a cute little stable in the back of shoreditch and i thought i'm just gonna open it i mean i didn't have everything ready in terms of strategy and data and everything it was like i'm gonna open and within three months we were full and um, people would walk past and then I, I, one business signed up and now we've got 150 corporate partners and we've done hardly, we've just started doing marketing in the last year. We didn't do any outreach and I think it was just, there was something about it that people were like, I can understand this, I get it and I can get on board with this and I feel good about it and uh, I want to go there and I want to take my photo outside or I, I feel better about this. I don't feel as if I'm an outsider, which mm. is what was happening with mental health. Before. If you were struggling, you were at an outsider or them. What's wrong with them as opposed to all of us, yeah. all of us struggling humans? Um, I'm so pleased to know that you came, actually. To say, I didn't know that, actually. So I did um, a virtual appointment during lockdown. Did you just do one? Yep. Would you go back to it? I'm not saying sales space, but would you go back to therapy if you felt like you needed it? Yeah, I had a really good uh, period of 14 months with a therapist. And that was when I fully broke down uh, several years ago. And I went every single week religiously. And it was one of the most helpful, transformative things because it was the first time somebody where I could be reflective or I could be honest and I didn't feel judged. And I remember when my therapist actually left and said, I'm, this is really hard, but I'm actually moving. I'm leaving the area. I broke down. We both mm-hmm. had a little bit of a cry. And I said, oh. I, and I said, part of it is because I realized that I've been like the truest version of myself in this room and you don't hate me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's and so then, amazing. yeah, and it was really wonderful. So, but I just, I felt, I think obviously during the pandemic, things were tough. And then that thing happened with my friend and it really knocked me for six. And I was thought, okay, well, I obviously need some support here. So that's it was very easy to just go online, book an appointment. I I did it within 24 hours. I had my session. So yeah, you can normally get a session at Salesforce within an hour. Actually, we're nearly 150 clinicians now. And like you say, we do see people weekly. We see some people twice a week. 
they come for years or they might come once and we have a, we have a much more autonomous service than lots of lots of other providers which is mm. you're in charge of your mental health you get to say when you want to come it's not us we don't know you better you know you best mm. and I think that's got to be the driver towards mental health where support whereas before it's been the clinician is the all-seeing all-knowing mm. I I don't prescribe to that I believe that the client knows himself way better than we ever could and I don't think I think the playing field should be level um which is we're both humans in this space and I'm going to do my best to help you to help yourself mm-hmm. and and I'm going to champion you and I'm going to call you out and I'm gonna I'm going to be here when I say I'm going to be here and I think I think that's the best best that we could do but I think uh, you know as you say about your experience in therapy I think you know what you experience in that relationship you can then take that outside the room so that thing that you might never have had that that really intimate relationship which feels different the thing you learned about that the quality of it can be the thing that you bring into the world it's it's a place to practice is what therapy is is Mm. is what I think Um, also I'd be really interested to know what you think about because when I suppose when I was going into therapy in that sort of time it was still before the mental health conversation I think had matured into something dare I say mainstream and for me as a journalist when when I think when you start seeing it in Sunday supplements you know that it's kind of about to hit critical mass right and I think very much probably nine years ago it was before it was before that real build and I was very much on this podcast advocating talking about your feelings going and having therapy I was talking to various experts about their mental health journeys or I was talking to psychotherapists or talking about very specific issues, depression, anxiety, and getting as many people on the show as I could so that someone who perhaps wasn't open to, couldn't for any reason access it or hadn't even thought that it was something for them, they could listen to a conversation that might be a spark to really help them on their journey. But what I've noticed, and I have very consciously moved away from being somebody who creates content around mental health, if I'm being brutally honest about it now, is that something in the last few years happened whereby instead of being a conversation to to help somebody figure out where they're at so that a path could be plotted towards the version of themselves that they wanted to get to, it is now a labeling, almost like a labeling service. And I I find that very unhelpful because if I had said, if you'd said to me nine years ago, Emma, you're depressed. You've got depression. You've got anxiety, and that was it. I then I would just have said, "Well, can the world treat me differently then?" Because I've got depression, I've got anxiety. Whereas I I came into things at a point when it was like, "Right, you've got depression, so counselling will really help, and you'll begin to get back to not necessarily the old you, but the new you." A version of you, exactly. So you can tell I'm blathering now. No, no, not at all. I think, no, I totally think what you're saying is so relevant. And I've been having a lot of these conversations, which is, and I'm really against labeling, actually. And um, we don't diagnose itself space. And often when people come in with a diagnosis, I pay little attention to that. Um, I think I, I really feel you're absolutely right. Culturally, we've moved into a place where labeling seems to be a quick exit, which is almost as if if I know, if I can say this is what I am or what's happening, that actually stops me doing any deep interrogation. It's a quick exit. It's like, oh, well, I'm an extrovert. Okay, well, that's why then. As opposed Mm -hmm. to who are you and why are you like that? And how did you get there? And where do you want to get to? 
like you say, teasing out the the human in it as opposed to just quickly slapping a label on it and then believing that that, under, um, that, that explains everything. And not, being a narcissist is one that I could keep hearing. You know, or they're a narcissist, she's a narcissist. And it's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe they have narcissistic traits. Maybe we all do. We all do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And maybe they really are, but it doesn't, that, that doesn't really matter. What matters is you and how you feel and what's happening and, and how did you get here? So I, yeah, I'm a kind of, I'm a bit anti it all. I think categorizing too, too clearly and not allowing ourselves to sit in the gray, which is not knowing, which is actually a really, really important place to be. It's very rich and fertile, which is we just we're with the feeling of it as opposed to the the thinking and idea of it. I just I think the thing that I've noticed and even I uh, was watching some reality TV show and I think somebody was ba- basically hysterically crying, said it's defecting my mental health. And you know, it's towering. <laughs> It's like doing my mental health in, and it's almost like you've even changed how you use the vocabulary. And it's like, well, how is it affecting you? And it's just just to say, uh, it's affecting my mental health. I think I think doesn't actually say anything, does it? Not really. Or I no, I know what it was. It was it's giving me mental health. I'm just like, what does that (laughs) mean? Doesn't even make sense anyway. This idea that the that mental health, like, it's a bit like. I really wish I don't I really wish we didn't have that concept mental health in some way because it's just all health Mm. it's all feelings it's all something and um it it, (laughs) there is a lot of that poor Towie and those things (laughs) Love Island and stuff like that I don't you know I I I don't want to run anything down but gosh the world has a lot to answer for right now in terms of what's happening to people and how they feel I think it's the thing of it's all well and good to open up the conversation about one's health when it comes to um, mental and emotional issues. And it's great to have a varied vocabulary vocabulary around that. But I think what we've done when I talked about, you know, when it's in a Sunday supplement, you know, it's hitting critical mass is we've armed people with so much vocabulary around it. But the vocabulary is kind of meaningless if you don't know where it can take you or it, it if you if it's just words that you're using as descriptors rather than words that you're using as points on your journey and, and exactly that and if you aren't doing the work the labels that the the, the 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 language doesn't really matter so i think it's about if you can use it as a springboard into wow you know i wonder if maybe there is some intergenerational trauma in my family or hmm, that's piqued my curiosity I want to do some more excavation on that. Great. Use it to springboard deeper thought, deeper inquiry, rather than just sitting on the top of the of the thinking, which is the 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 cognitive piece, which actually you need the feeling and the thinking to marry up for it to mean anything. Mm. So I I guess if you are if you notice that you're returning to particular things over and over again on social media if you're searching things not necessarily a diagnosis but why am i feeling or you know whatever the things are really take notice of that which is i'm curious about myself and that's a really good thing now where can i go with it mm-hmm. rather than just putting yourself into a hole of diagnostics and uh, traits and things like that do you think it's possible to dig a little bit too deep? And I ask because I had a conversation with someone recently who was like, I think you need to go and 
investigate your and um was it research your ancestors because that would really fill in a lot of gaps and I'm like really I was really closed off to it I have to be honest I was a little bit of stress I'm like, really got enough on my plate without well gosh yeah I mean maybe we can I think our families are so complex aren't they and it depends if it really interests you I think if it if it interests you I'm not sure how many answers it will give you but if you have a curiosity about family lines or traits of behavior and you want to change it I think it's quite useful Mm. I don't know I'm a bit with you I'm a little bit on the fence with it I think how does it serve us if it gives us a sense of kind of tapestry of our lives it gives us a kind of sense of gravitas to something great do what you need to do but knowing about your ancestors is not doing the work on yourself. Not really. Yeah. It was interesting recently because um, I've spoken on this podcast about really struggling with food and recently just not not leaning into it is the wrong word, but just sort of accepting that it's an eating disorder. And um, quite a few people it, actually in a professional context have said to me, would you write about it and maybe talk about how it's linked to a childhood trauma or can you trace it back to a moment in your childhood? And I'm like, how is that? Like, this is about living day to day. Like really I have to wake up in the morning and know what my plan is. Like if I spend a lot of time just going, yep, do you know it was when that girl called me fat in the playground, that was what did it. I just don't Mm -hmm. know what the value is in that. I mean, all I can probably, all I can think is looking back, there probably were a few moments like that, that unbeknownst to me subconsciously, I internalized and that's what led to what it led to but just knowing Mm. knowing that for certain which I will never know for certain will that really help my recovery oh interesting it's a great you raised some really amazing points I think um in that context yes I do I do think it does help actually I don't think but I wouldn't go down that route which is I don't necessarily think the behavior we adopt necessarily has to do with an event that was linked to that thing back in the past so doesn't necessarily need to be linked to the fact that somebody called you fat if they did it it, that the way that we so so addicts might not uh, you know substance misuse might not have anything to do with drugs in the past at all but what we have to know is that somewhere we had a loss of control somewhere we didn't feel we had mastery over our lives somewhere something was deeply painful and people get really confused by what trauma means and they'll say come to therapy and they say well I didn't you know my my child was really good I didn't really have any big trauma and I'm kind of embarrassed about being in therapy and it can be the tiniest thing it can be the tiniest repeated behaviors within families that make us feel helpless and lost and unheard unseen and then we start to take control which might be well I'm not going to eat because I can't control that and I can't control my feeling about that. It's not as conscious as this. It's deeply unconscious. But what I can do is I, I don't need to eat. And then people tell me I look good and then, and then I feel better. And then I feel like I'm in control of something, which is not really the thing I need control of. Mm. So, so the excavation you might want to do is around, you know, how do we learn these coping mechanisms and why did we need them and what's the vulnerability it's covering up? What are the triggers? You know, when does it kick in? When do I notice I'm more aware of what I'm eating or 
you know, withholding from myself. And there might be a lot of context to that. So that I think is really rich. That often informs how we're living now. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I need to not be quite so. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it's not about and just it's it's less about the kind of the the family line, but it's more about these really really subtle, often subtle, sometimes huge things that throw us as young people, as babies, as children, into a sense of not being good enough somehow, not 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 being enough. The environment wasn't safe, even just emotionally safe. And then we adopt, we craft, we find a way to fill that that void, that gap. Right. Um, right, maybe I'll be booking <laughs> another session. <laughs> We've got it all for you. Maybe um, I, maybe I absolutely yeah. will. Maybe yeah, I absolutely do. will. Um, do. Right. <laughs> do you know what? I've talked about <laughs> one of the big, because for me, that has been an obstacle that I've overcome, but it's work that I do every day to overcome. But um let's talk about yours because I asked you tons of questions and we've only got three ones so far because and you said that <laughs> being uh, your biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome was being told that you weren't smart as a child oh and, yes and also frequently and often you the words that you use but that you weren't pretty sorry <laughs> I've got that wrong because I read it I read it over thing <laughs> being told that you weren't smart but that you were pretty yeah, that's what I used to have. That was a big thing for me. Um, God, if I'd been told I wasn't smart and well, I, I wasn't pretty, I might have never come out the corner. But we're sort of <laughs> laughing about that, but people do experience that, you know, it's mm. really difficult. And and who actually cares whether you're smart or you're pretty? Nothing, that, none of that matters. It's about what meaning you find and in relationships and stuff like that. But I was there was a sort of sense and I really don't want to say this word but I'm going to say it because it was what I was told and what I thought about myself which was that I was a bimbo do you remember that word I mean my daughter probably wouldn't even know what that word is but there was this idea that I was a bit stupid but but nobody really took any time to know me mm. so they made an assumption about how I was um or I felt they did um because no one there there was a sort of idea in my family that if you were academic you were boring you were boring you know if you weren't getting pissed all the time you were boring and that was actually said to me like I can remember coming downstairs my mum used to have a lot of parties she's kind of an old raver and I'd be like like I've really got to get up for school she'd be like oh god you're so boring and I can remember thinking oh my god I am I'm so boring god to god and so there wasn't a sort of championing of and I wouldn't call myself an academic anyway but I am quite entrepreneurial and I am quite smart I'm quite quick um which is the opposite of what I was told I was mm. um and it took me a really long time to kind of get down with the fact that I I felt like I had something to offer the world in a way that you know, hadn't been championed as a as a child. And and when we got asked to write the book actually for Penguin, they approached us. Of both Chance and I, we come from kind of similar backgrounds. He's my partner at South Base, my business partner. We had this moment where I was like, I definitely can't write a book. Like, oof, oh no, awful. Like, how how dare they even think that we could do that? You know, we're just not those people to really sit in resistance of that and go, okay, look, anything is possible here. And um that was a big thing actually and when I was in TV along with the being a bit fat I was told at a massive dinner once I'm not going to say who it was but lots of people know who it was that I was there to be seen and not heard 
and that I should sit down. Oh my god. I mean, God. And I was like, yeah, of course, because I, I definitely don't have anything to add here. I can remember thinking that. Of course, that was what I was told before. So I better just sit here. And actually, what I really think happened in you know, in my family, and I think it happens in a lot of families, and I don't know about your your kind of history, but if you're a change maker, if you're someone that wants to change the system within your family, you often get pushed down by being told you're too emotional or you know what you know why are you causing a scene or if you are different and you want to push on out of that in some way everybody is terrified of that and they'll find any way to try and silence you even if it's not conscious mm-hmm. it's interesting uh, dr nicola pera uh, something i think that she tweeted a little while ago where she said something like sometimes if you're the only person in a family who has done any therapy or any work you suddenly become the squeaky wheel you become you're the, the problem thing. yeah you're the problem and I would say I had a conversation with my family about that recently just saying I had to do the work for me but obviously the the sort of ramifications for the family were that obviously I didn't just it wasn't something that just went on in my head it was something that then became a bigger part of who I was and then yes you're absolutely right it's like you're bringing things up that god just let it go Emma <laughs> why are you talking about that Emma why would you want to talk about that or you know, and I don't think my family weren't definitely weren't malicious about it. And then they're very supportive of what I do. But I was I definitely pose a bit of a threat. And and I did, I did pose a threat when I when I started to want to be a bit different or wouldn't tolerate some things in the you know family. And I, I tend not to create very much drama in that anymore. But I and, and it's worked out fine. But I think, I think it's, I think it's a real thing in family systems, particularly if you're moving through and out of um, layers of, of trauma or, or challenges, actually. Do, do you find that people have one of two perceptions of you based on what you do with self-space specifically? In that either you are this angel who has been able to glide through life without any challenges and so your mental health let's use the word your mental health is perfect and serene and untouched (laughs) like virgin hair that has never been dyed and that's why you that's why you bring that's why you're able to do what you do because you your your system has been unchallenged and is therefore undamaged or you're at the other end of it where you've had gone through so much crap (laughs) anything is okay (laughs) exactly do you feel that there's that sort of thing that you either sit you can you either exist at one end of that spectrum yeah I think there's that and there's also I never tell anyone at a party what I do because they immediately go can I just talk to you about my friend (laughs) or can I just talk to you so I just I don't say I'm just like oh I do a bit bits and bobs (laughs) I run a business um I think there is that and of course we bring ourselves into the room and I think um I think the misconception about therapists is that they've all got their shit together and I I think it's it's absolutely okay to know that everyone's a human here and nobody has their shit together there's that one thing um that I think really people do associate with with therapists um and that somehow they're going to be able to look into your soul and know everything about you that is another one well can you read my mind no I'm not Yuri Geller but I can't or whoever it is just Ben Spoon you know what I mean um I think I think there is that and I guess I'd sit on the on the slightly more I've seen quite a lot and experienced quite a lot and um 
I definitely bring my 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 past into the room in a way um, and I think we all do whether we mm. want to or not um so so I think there is that and whether it's about whether you were broken or not somebody said to me I said I don't believe anyone was broke is broken and I think we're all broken actually I think we're all a little bit broken and I think that's a beautiful magical thing and I think it's what gives us our richness and there is no such thing as a perfect person right no, and actually, it takes a while to understand that. I think. I think I, I, again, to, uh, in the context of my body, for example, with the eating disorder, and even with uh, therapy and having had depression and anxiety, I felt like I had the. I was given a brand new iPhone, if you like, from the factory, and I damaged yeah. it, and I can never put it back to factory settings, and it's always going to be a little bit imperfect. And that's how I felt about my body, and that's how I felt about my brain, for, specifically mm. about my body. I still feel that a little bit. Like, I had this body, I wrecked it by overeating, I stretched it out, and the the um, you can see that. Um, and what an idiot, because it was, at one point, it was fresh and it was brand new. And I ballsed it up. And I felt that about I felt that about both things. But now I'm beginning to understand more with my brain than I think my body. But that actually that's that's that is a beautiful thing. You don't want it to be pristine and new because then it's unused. And the yeah. fact that you've been through it is evidence that you've used it. Yeah. And don't you I think you're so brave and courageous, particularly in your industry, to talk about this stuff as well, Emma. I think, you know, this is what we need, which is people showing up as people with all of the things that they're struggling with, the things that they've struggled with, the complexes they have. I think this helps us to feel less lonely as humans, actually. The more we share, the more we we listen and understand others. It, I think it's a really, really powerful place. Do you think um, there's something, isn't there, about, um, about how how other people receive you as well and um, your body and um, it's not always, oh, what do I, what am I trying to say? That, that most of it is what comes from inside, but there's also something about other people not validating, oh, you look perfect, but accepting the bit that's not working or accepting the part of you that you can't bear to look at or see. And I'm I'm thinking actually about a moment, just recently we were in Ibiza and I have, I never really, I'm not really a big drinker, but I had a hangover. And and that, I always, always felt so much shame about that just because drinking was a real cultural thing in my, in my family, which I don't really like. And I've, I've always found it really difficult. And the idea of having a hangover for me is like, God, that's awful. How how dare you have a hangover? And my business partner was there in Ibiza with me. And he came over to the sun lounger and he just tapped me on the head and he said, oh, like patted me and he said, good for you. You so fucking deserve that night out. <laughs> and there was something about that that was so permission giving mm -hmm. that, that, that I wonder if there's also something about the people in our, in our sphere and how we're received in in all of our imperfectness, which which also helps us to come to terms with it and be okay with it. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if you feel that. Yeah. I think so. I think so. <laughs> do you when what do you see when you look in the mirror? That's one of our deep and meaningful questions. Do you feel positive about your body now? I do because I've changed it. Mm but it's not about how I've changed it aesthetically 
uh, the the size or the shape or the weight of it. It's about at some point a few years ago making a commitment to myself to be really honest about what I was doing to it with food that it wasn't anybody else's fault. It wasn't my hormones. It wasn't my glands. It wasn't the patriarchy. It was me eating the stuff. Like, do you know what I mean? It was wasn't just... Love Island. It was me. <laughs> it was me. And deciding I was never going to go on another diet again. Mm. That I was going to, to put myself first when it came to the choices I made around eating. And it didn't have to be perfect. And so for me, it's about when I look in the mirror, I like what I see because I've unlocked something that was very, very, very challenging and complicated that took up so much of my time I'd wake up in the morning and first thought what does my gut look like I'd look in the mirror Mm. I'd start sucking everything in I called in sick I didn't like I everything about every decision I made for maybe what the first half an hour of my day was about okay I've got to get out of bed how do I conceal how do I not see myself when I'm Mm. changing it it was just there was a lot of shame and um hiding going on and yeah. I didn't want to live like that for the rest of my life. And I just, again, it was being in my early th- early 40s, wanting to live to the corners and thinking I've half lived my life without yeah. a shadow of a doubt. This has robbed me of so much joy and so much kind of peace. And yet, yeah. unless I told you, you would have had mm-hmm. no idea what was going on. Yeah. And so yeah. I just thought this is a mental prison of my own making and I want out. I want out of it. Please. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing that you managed to find that way. Because, you know, I think there's, it's such a cliche that this life is so short, but it so is. And it's, you know, no one is going to make this better for you. That's what I think. I, I, I really believe that, you know, even a therapist, it's, it's about you believing you deserve to live better. You deserve to feel okay. This is it. This is all we've got is this just this one time. And if we are not, you know, really empowered in that, you kind of what's the point? And I don't mean what's the point in being here. That That's not what I mean. I just mean for you, what is the point? Mm. You know, how is it serving you? How is this cycle of of, uh, of pain that you, people often find themselves in in different ways for different things whether it's a difficult relationship whether it's work whether it's just okay that change is possible change is always possible always always yeah absolutely my goodness I well <laughs> we've, we've got... covered a lot haven't we <laughs> we have and it's an unexpected and also the thing that we need to tell listeners is it's a scorching hot day and we are both sweating I never sit in a vest actually I'm gonna be like oh, RPR and I'll be like what was going on it's like 900 degrees here and um, maybe at some points we've we've uh tackled <laughs> subjects that are do get me a little bit hot under the collar and nervous but genuinely my I am shining because it is just so warm but I um we we have covered a lot of ground and I do think it's really special what you've done and what you've created and I hope that what a conversation like this does is it brings people back to, not brings people back down to, but I think because of what we were talking about earlier with the way that there's been a shift in tone, and I think it's a tonal shift that actually fundamentally isn't that helpful in what we're trying I to agree. do. I think hopefully this is the kind of conversation that will bring anyone back who may, maybe feels like they've kind of lost, not lost interest, but 
lost enthusiasm or just feel like it's all gone a little bit too far yeah yeah I agree and I also think conversations like this and you know platforms like yours are really important because I think we find ourselves in others and whether it's a moment in what's been said whether it's something that resonates I think you know as as humans what we're looking for is some type of connection and we find that in other people whether it's people we know whether it's you know these types of things and I think that's so important it's intimacy is the most important thing for our sense of fulfillment in life Um, and I think that comes from others I 100 hundred percent agree thank you so much for saying that and thank you for for throwing some questions my way I wasn't expecting those <laughs> that'll be the therapist in me Emma <laughs> no I know and do you know what as soon as you asked the first one I thought this is brilliant this is absolutely brilliant it's nice to have that exchange it's nice to have the uh the back and forth so this has been great I think we should have you back on at some point to maybe deep dive I would into love other that topics. but um thank you so that. much for joining me and also i will put the links to self space to you to everything in the show notes but thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me and let's go for lunch or dinner or something because i would love that thanks for having me Emma. it's a deal <laughs> thank you so much for listening to that episode of the emma gun show i do hope you enjoyed it i appreciate your time hugely if you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.